This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Friday, November 18, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you from on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe, in for Dave Brown. Let's hit those horns and go. Coming up today on the show, we have our weekly news panel with Michelle McQuig and Joita Gupta. Today, we discuss Donald Trump's 2024 U.S. presidential bid. We consider the conversation around mass mandates and recommendations. And we contemplate whether there should be more vetting and safeguards for government. Tensions rise after Japan's intercontinental ballistic missile capable of targeting the entire U.S. mainland. He says it landed inside the Japanese exclusive economic zone, about 120 miles west of Haikido, Japan's most northern main island. Hamara says the North's latest missile launch is a reckless act that threatens Japan as well as the region and the international community. I'm Charles de Ledesma. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, who is in Thailand for the APEC summit, spoke following the news of the test. We're committed to promoting peace, stability and the rules-based order in the North Pacific and across the region. All global partners have a role to play. The Canadian Armed Forces are already working side by side with defense partners through, for example, Operation NEON, which helps enforce UN sanctions against North Korea. Other world leaders have also condemned this act. Inez de la Terra fills us in. Vice President Harris condemning North Korea's second major weapons test this month. We strongly condemn these actions and we again call for North Korea to stop further unlawful destabilizing acts. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern calling for the complete denuclearization of North Korea, while Australia's Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said the test was recklessly threatening our security. Inez de la Quatera, ABC News, at the Foreign Desk. Staying on the international front, a Dutch court has sentenced three men to life in prison for the intentional downing of Malaysian Air Flight 17. Karen Chamas files this report. The presiding judge, Hedrik Steenhus, announced that defendants Igor Girkin, Sergei Dubinsky and Leonid Harchenko were found guilty for the murders of 298 people. Two of those found guilty were Russians and the third was a pro-Russian Ukrainian separatist. One Russian was acquitted because of a lack of evidence. In the courtroom, some families of victims blinked away tears as Steenhus highlighted how their lives were changed forever on that day. Piet Pluch, who lost family members in the downing of Malaysian Airlines flight MH17, said he believed in the court system. Justice for me is when an independent court gives its verdict. Dichmar von Butzelach, who spoke on behalf of the prosecutor, said all defendants were equally responsible. In our opinion, they did it together and both have a different role, but not one is less than the other. I'm Karen Chamas. Now back here at home, senders have passed the bill of the National Dental Plan Benefit. Nicole Reese has the latest. 
The dental benefit was a compromise between the Liberals and NDP as part of the supply and confidence agreement that will see the new Democrats support the minority government until 2025. Families with a household income lower than $90,000 who do not have private insurance can apply for up to $650 per child under the age of 12. A spokeswoman for the health minister, Jean-Yves Duclos, says the portal to apply is expected to open on December 1st. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press. Now, Twitter's turmoil continues as staff firings and resignations grow. Jennifer King has more. Twitter's new owner, Elon Musk, gave workers a choice, either click on a link by close of business Thursday and pledge to work hardcore or resign with three months severance pay. Since taking over Twitter less than three weeks ago, Musk fired the top executives, booted half the company's full-time staff of 7,500, and began firing engineers who took issue with him publicly. Three engineers who left this week told the Associated Press they expect unpleasantness ahead now that two-thirds of Twitter's core services engineers are now apparently gone. It's not clear how many workers took Musk up on his offer. Some workers announced they were leaving on Twitter in the company's internal messaging board or took to a private forum asking questions about their U.S. visas or wondering if they'd get the promised pay. The latest round of departures come just before the World Cup, one of Twitter's busiest events. Musk's managerial bomb-throwing style has some industry insiders wondering if Twitter might soon fray so badly it could actually crash. I'm Jennifer King. Now we'll touch on Twitter and social media a bit later when we get to the news panel, but for now... Let's take a look at the daily polls. Let's start off with the results from Thursday. We asked you, do you get competitive when you play games? 38% of you said yes, 38% of you said no, and 24% of you said sometimes. So pretty evenly split. So what about today's poll? I'm asking you guys, how excited are you for the World Cup? Very, somewhat, or not at all? I can tell you right now, I am super excited for the World Cup for the first time in my lifetime. Canada's in the draw. I'm also a big fan of Germany, so I'm excited to check that out. But uh, I first want to reach out and talk with Mike Ross, welcome him in, and get his thoughts on this. Mike, how is it going? I'm great. Thank you, Alex. Uh, I'm like you. Um, uh, I'm obviously a Canada fan, so I'm really pumped about Canada being uh, in this draw. Uh, But I'm also a Germany fan. And so with the exception of 1986, where I wasn't really into world soccer yet, um, you know, I've always cheered for Germany, whether it be Euro, whether it be the World Cup. So this is kind of a different gear for me. I'm certainly pulling for Deutschland, but uh, really, really excited to see Canada uh, taking part of it. And fact is, I got to announce for Team Canada in uh, one of their preparation games, one of their uh, qualifying games against the United States. So I got to see them in action. They beat the U.S. in Hamilton. That was super exciting. So, uh, you know, I feel there's an even bigger sort of connection uh, between me and that national team than there ever was before. So I'm pretty pumped. Well, and as you say, too, the, it, it feels like this year is different. I know we talked, we mentioned they haven't been in it before, but just even the excitement around the World Cup in general, I don't know whether it's just because we're doing this in the fall burgeoning on the winter instead of typically what happens when it's hosted in the summertime. But there, there's a bigger energy here, and, and I'm really excited to see what can happen in this competition. Can Canada actually pull out a win? That That's something that's really going to be exciting. But uh, I want to welcome in Eliza Rocco. Eliza, 
What about you? Are you excited for the World Cup, or are you not really all caught up with it? I'm probably I put myself in the somewhat excited category. I don't follow soccer super closely. Um, my dad would be very ashamed of me saying that. He is a huge, huge soccer fan.、Um, but soccer is just one of those sports that I just don't follow very closely. However. Like we all said, Canada being in it for the first time since what 1986. That is so so exciting. And the thing I love the most about sports is in big competitions like this, where there's a lot of pressure or playoffs or anything like that. That's my favorite kind of sport, as I'm I'm sure it is for most people. So I I'm I am I am pretty excited. This is also. One of the first times、um, I haven't.、Uh, I used to be a server, and I used to have to work during the World Cup, and、uh, that wasn't so fun. So now I am excited to be be going to the restaurant and be served during the World Cup instead. It should be a much more fun experience. Yeah, exactly. You get to be on the other side of、yeah. it. You're not <laughs> busting your butt trying to serve all these people <laughs> at like 8 a.m. trying to get them all、mm-hmm. their their foods and、mm-hmm. drinks. Yeah, it's it's gonna be a much more fun one this year. So I am I am looking. Maybe I put myself in that very category actually, because I am.、Uh, the more I talk about it, the more I'm looking forward to it and, and cheering on Canada, of course. Yeah, me and Mike are getting you hyped, obviously. Yeah, well,、uh, the great thing <laughs> is the first game starts Sunday, and and we want to hear from you. So our poll is available on Facebook at at Accessible Media Inc. And you can also vote on Twitter at at Accessible Media. But for now, let's head back to Mike, who has a look at the weather. Thank you, Alex. This is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. And we'll begin in Saint John's, Newfoundland, where there's a mix of sun and cloud today. Showers beginning this afternoon, and a temperature steady near plus four. Halifax has a mix of sun and cloud today, and a high of plus three. Montreal mainly cloudy. And a few flurries beginning this morning, expecting about two centimeters in total. Your high is zero, the wind chill minus eight. Ottawa, a few flurries, two centimeters in total. Your high zero. Your wind chill this morning is minus nine. In Toronto, it will be a mix of sun and cloud with a high of plus one, the wind chill minus seven. Thunder Bay, Ontario, is mainly cloudy with a high of minus five, and the wind chill there minus fifteen. In Winnipeg, cloudy this morning, and then some snow. Not a lot, though, by Winnipeg standards. Only two centimeters coming your way today.、And、the high is minus seven. The wind chill this morning minus twenty-four. That will go up to minus fourteen in the afternoon. In Saskatoon, a mix of sun and cloud today, with a high of minus seven. The wind chill this morning minus twenty, minus fifteen this afternoon. In Calgary, sunshine and a high of minus one. The wind chill minus twelve this morning, minus six this afternoon. To Edmonton, sunny and a high of minus two. The wind chill will be minus fourteen this morning, minus five this afternoon. In Yellowknife, cloudy and a temperature steady near minus seven. The wind chill sits around minus thirteen. And into British Columbia, Vancouver will be sunny with a high of eleven. Victoria, same thing, sunshine and eleven degrees. And that was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Mike. And you know, as it is、uh, the trend this time of year, Vancouver, Victoria, it's when they get the envious weather. Coming up next, we kick off our weekly news panel and discuss Donald Trump's 2024 U.S. presidential bid. 
Welcome back. It's now Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm filling in for Dave Brown as Alex Smythe here. It's Friday, so that means we assemble our weekly news panel. So let's welcome to the show our panelists, Juita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. Good morning, Juita. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Michelle. Hello, Alex. Hello, Juita. So we'll start off with the U- uh, with Donald Trump. The U.S. midterm elections have just concluded, and while some races are still being decided, including a Senate race in Georgia, former President Donald Trump has officially announced his plans to run again for president in 2024. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for president of the United States. Now, so, Joita, you pitched this topic. Why did you want to explore Donald Trump's uh, latest presidential bid? Mostly because I came across a very pithy headline in The Economist, which says Donald Trump wants to make America great again, again. I just wanted an opportunity (laughs) to say that on air. Uh, But beyond that, I think it is uh, worth contemplating his rather turbulent four years in office and um, the fact that he's not exactly been out of the spotlight in the years after his his term in office. Donald Trump was, you'll forgive the understatement, a deeply polarizing figure. And I think he really changed how politics was con- is and was conducted in the United States. So why is he back? What does it mean that he is once again um, putting forward a bid to reclaim the presidency of the United States of America? Is he likely to be successful? What does the recent what do the recent midterm elections indicate about Donald Trump's probable success rate? And of course, you know, it has been an extremely eventful 24 months or so. We've had the pandemic. We've had uh, economic issues. We've had the war in Ukraine. So even stepping outside of the, uh, the Trump candidacy and campaign, I would be interested to know what issues and I know it's hard to say two years ahead of time, but I would be interested to know what issues will take center stage in this next presidential election. Yeah, well, you know, this is one of those things that, as we mentioned, it's like the they're still kind of tabulating some of the results. There's going to be a Georgian uh, yeah. uh, Senate runoff. So it's so early to to announce the, uh, the candidacy. But, Michelle, I want to go to you. What did you make of his announcement? Uh, I mean, uh, to be completely honest with you, I'm a lot more interested in the response to the announcement or what it's been so far than the announcement itself, because this was basically the least surprising headline in quite some time. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He was widely anticipated to announce a bid. The big question was going to be around timing. And that, I think, is one of the really interesting aspects of this, because he did decide to make it against advice from others before all the midterm results have been settled, Alex, like you said. He's opted to go ahead and do it anyway. Even though it was actually kind of an embarrassing turn of events for him. The midterms had a lot of people who were heavily Trump endorsed, even sometimes picked personally by him. Those candidates, as a rule, fared very poorly, even in some high profile races. You might remember the prospect of Governor Dr. Oz. Uh, That did not happen in Pennsylvania. That was one of the races where Dr. Oz had been a candidate who was picked by Donald Trump and heavily promoted by him. Uh, He he went and stumped for him. That didn't happen either. Same for Governor of Arizona. Carrie Lake uh, recently was defeated after a really close race, but she did go down. 
And that was the trend all across the board. So I think people are reacting with a bit of surprise and skepticism about how he's going to pull this one off again, uh, given all the, the, the tumult that surrounded his last presidency, uh, the reception that his handpicked slate of candidates are receiving now, and the perception that perhaps he may be a bit of a drag on the brand. That said, this is both Donald Trump and the United States, and I have learned the hard way not to ever count anything as impossible. <laughs> yeah, that's so. a very, very good point because we saw in 2016 that, you know, people didn't really take him seriously back then when he was uh, running up against a, a Democratic uh, presidency, and he ended up winning. We we all know the results of, of that and what followed, but I, I agree with you in the fact that, you know, he... He, nom- he put forth and, and uh, supported candidates, and none of them did that well. And you're starting to see this shift from the conservative party of, of uh, the Republicans trying to somewhat distance themselves, but they're not all fully coming out yet and being like, no, we, we don't want him running. And like, well, maybe if you delay it a bit, oh, oh, do it after the, the Senate runoff. That just kind of seems to be showing that, okay— we we understand you still have a grip on a lot of the base of the party, but we also don't fully trust your support is really going to lead to us getting the win in, in Georgia. Uh, Joita, what do you make of it? Um, one of the things that's interesting about this is that it was a very low energy announcement. Uh, I was watching it and I was thinking that, you know, Donald Trump sounds like he's sick with the flu or something. Like he really didn't seem to be uh, to be able to hold the room or capture the audience. Uh, it was interesting that he doesn't seem to have a lot of support, as you pointed out, Alex, within the party with several prominent Republicans being absent. Um, you'll excuse me for being a bit gossipy, but Ivanka Trump was missing. So I'm not sure how, uh, you know, and she was in at least in the first ra- go round, a huge supporter of Donald Trump. You don't really see Ivanka. And now she, I think, subsequently put out a statement saying she's not going to help her dad campaign. Uh, so when you actually look at the announcement itself, it goes very predictably. They're talking about the border. They're talking about radical Democrats and the uh, fact that they've reversed many quote-unquote successes brought about by the Trump administration. Uh, a lot of self-congratulations and complimentary <laughs> anecdotes. And the other thing that was really interesting, and I kind of note this as um, as a journalist, is just how different and muted the media reaction has been uh, with mm-hmm. very lukewarm interest from the media. Uh, you uh, even, you know, and it's not just the, the traditional sources that were critical of Donald Trump, but also the Fox News actually just turned down the announcement and, and brought the, uh, the, the, analysis, uh, the, the analysts to comment on the speech. It was quite surprising because Fox News would often go out to, uh, you know, go out to bat for Donald Trump. Um, I don't think it's the kind of announcement that's going to be particularly intimidating to uh, his competitors. Uh, so as you pointed out, I, Alex, it is all happening in the context of a Republican Party that wants to distance it. Uh, itself from Donald Trump for all the reasons that Michelle has done such an excellent job of highlighting. Um, I'm not going to go ahead and and regurgitate that. Um, Even if his even if his policy platform is palatable, I think the general sentiment within the Republican Party is uh, that we just don't want the drama that goes along with it. And uh, according to some recent polling, just about 48 percent of uh, Republican primary voters uh, say that uh, they will support Donald Trump. And that is actually uh, worth considering because it's not insignificant 
two years from uh, the beginning of the campaign. So I'd be curious about whether the Republican Party establishment is able to dissuade uh, voters away from, primary voters away from Donald Trump. It's very hard to rule him out. As you pointed out, Alex, he was a bit of an underdog in 2016, and he may end up, he may end up uh, winning the nomination in, in, uh, in 2024. We shall see. Can yeah. I throw another wild card into the mix here? Go right ahead. Among, among the many factors that Joita listed as, as things that could change, in, you know, two years is a long time. A lot has happened in two years. A lot will happen in the next two years that could drive his support either up or down. But one factor that I don't think can be totally dismissed because of its potential impact on swing voters is the January 6th investigation, mm-hmm. which is now focusing very specifically on the man himself. Um, I don't think any of those findings would do much to persuade the hardcore Trump allies and backers, but that's not who we're really talking about anymore. Uh, the Republican Party's concerns all sit center on the damage that he could or, or has done to the brand, at least in some circles. Uh, the midterms are fuel for that fire, and whatever the January 6th investigation centers on and finds out whether or not he eventually agrees to testify, as he's been asked to do now, um, that could be really interesting. It could certainly shape narratives, both from Republican rivals and from the Democrats for the next couple of years. Absolutely. And and one thing, too, uh, as we are still gaining the uh, the results of the midterm election, it's it's widely predicted that the Republicans are taking control of the House, and we've already heard some preemptive uh, promises from the Republican leadership that they are going to start doing investigations into different Democratic leaders. They're, they're, they're threatening to uh, kind of do their own January 6th committee. So these next two years could really uh, slow down and really muddy some of those those waters around certain investigations or, or certain mm-hmm. um, uh, panels that are in place right now. Uh, one thing that I kind of wanted, I, I was kind of thinking of out loud and, and kind of figuring out that this kind of reminds me a bit like 2016, but on the Democratic side, when mm-hmm. you had very popular Bernie Sanders, who was kind of on the the edge of the Democratic Party, and he had a very staunch support from his vocal uh, a vocal group and supporters, but mm-hmm. the party in the primary decided to go a different route. They went with mm-hmm. more establishment, a bit more what they thought would be widely palatable with Hillary Clinton as their nominee, and it led to Donald Trump being elected as as president. I I almost wonder if we could see the kind of a similar uh, path if this stays the course that Donald Trump he still has that hold over his his base but someone who may be seen as a bit more um, palatable from the Republican Party, like Ron DeSantis, who yeah. is seen as kind of the, mm-hmm. the power yeah. player and, and the favorite right now. Uh, obviously, two years out could be a very different story. But I wonder if that may be something that, that happens when we do get to the election. Mm-hmm. No, it's a good point. Ron DeSantis is certainly getting a lot of backing from the establishment. But you bring up the Democrats, and I think um, part of this conversation also involves what's happening on the Democratic side of the equation. Mm-hmm. If you think about um, who his contender might be, mm-hmm. uh, Joe Biden is now seventy-nine. He'll probably be eighty by the time he's running for. Uh, by the time he starts campaigning, I'm not sure if he'll run again. Um, I mean, I, I suspect he'd say that he would run again, uh, just because it's the kind of thing you 
you sort of have to. But I can't say for sure that he'll actually end up being um, the, the the Democratic nominee. So oftentimes, um, you know, I think we should also perhaps pay some attention to what's happening with the Democratic Party in this whole election, because that will uh, have a huge impact on the success rate for Donald Trump or any other Republican candidate. So, of course, I don't, as I said, we don't really know very much about what's happening on that side of uh, of the aisle, but something to keep an eye on for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I'm I'm curious what you two think might be some of the main issues with the the next election. It we saw with the prime uh, with the the midterms, abortion rights seem to be really front and center, even though. Polling didn't fully suggest uh, coming into the midterms that that was going to be a primary factor. But in the exit polling, it also that was one of the biggest issues. So what do you think the the issues at play for the next election will be? Can I borrow from James Carville for a sec? Absolutely. (laughs) It's the economy, stupid. I think that's going to be the thing for the next couple of years, especially given all the inflation rhetoric that's already happening. Um, Until we see a dramatic and sustained turnaround on that front, I really can't imagine that not being a huge, huge issue. Um, Abortion rights, I suspect, will also continue to be dominant because there's still so many courts that are, are... uh, maneuvering around that issue, whether they're they're blocking state bans or, or upholding them in some cases. Um, <clears throat> it, it's still very much a hot button issue. And I, th- I think that's going to be a big one. But I, I think another one, honestly, is, is just going to be a lot of, I think there's going to be a lot of patriotic discussion around America's place in the world and, and what kind of nation and figure the United States cuts in the international scene. Um, for better or for worse, I do think those are going to be themes that come up. Absolutely. Joita, I'll give you the last word on this topic. It's hard to say what the issues will be uh, in two years' time. But yes, I agree with Michelle. I think the, the economy is likely to be a big one, especially if things uh, continue continue along the same trajectory. Uh, you mentioned abortion, so I won't uh, reprise that argument. But also uh, just what Canada's, uh, pardon me, what the United States' role on the international stage would be, especially if the war in Ukraine continues as it has. But really, it's hard to get into any sort of specifics uh, about what the election issues might be outside of um, the economy and inflation. I hesitate to make any other predictions at the moment because a lot can and does change in two years as we've all lived it. So we know it. Uh, Of course, this might just be a bit of cautious optimism. I'm, I'm hoping that we can genuinely put the pandemic behind us in the next two years. But if that doesn't happen, I suspect COVID-19 will continue to rattle around as something of an ongoing issue. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So why don't we end the conversation there? So coming up next, we consider the conversation around mask mandates and recommendations. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. Welcome back to the Now News Panel on AMI. I'm Alex Smythe, in for Dave Brown, and I'm joined by Michelle McQuig and Shawita Gupta. So let's address our next topic. As COVID-19, RSV, and flu cases rise, the conversation of mask mandates and recommendations has returned. Ontario's Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Kieran Moore, spoke earlier this week and strongly recommended the use of masks and other preventative measures to protect others around us. 
If you have any symptoms of infection, you should mask around those that are the most vulnerable to our uh, individuals. You should be screening on a daily basis. Good hand hygiene is going to be exceptionally important with RSV and influenza. It's a call to vaccinate against influenza and COVID as there's no vaccine against RSV. We need to protect our health system. We need to protect each other. And it's really getting back to all of those basics. Despite his recommendations, Ontario Health Minister Sylvia Jones says that masking is a personal choice. I think that what we are seeing is people who are making determinations based on their personal circumstances. Personal choice is important here and we don't, we, we should not be passing judgment on people who wear a mask or not wear a mask. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith says that masking is a choice as well and that the province will not mandate masks. Anyone who feels comfortable to wear a mask should wear a mask. That should be a personal choice, and anyone who wants to make that choice, I support them. But we are not going to be mandating masks. We've heard loud and clear from parents that they want a normal school environment for their kids, and we're going to let kids be kids. Now, Michelle, this was your topic, so why did you want to bring it forward and chat about it today? Well, I think it's one that's on the minds of a lot of people as they try to navigate uh, a fairly infectious world at the moment with COVID still very much in the mix. Uh, two different kinds of, of other viruses going around, including influenza. <clears throat> I already know people who, who have been dropping like flies with this stuff, so I know it's very uh, much out there. And masking mandates are a big question right now, whether you're a parent with kids in schools wondering if, if perhaps a mandate would help curb some of the pediatric illnesses that are circulating right now. Or even if you're just trying to navigate, uh, you try to maintain the return to some pre-pandemic norms and keep navigating your community and, and doing doing your thing. It's a question that I think a lot of people are asking is whether or not one would matter. Uh, some people are very much of the opinion that people need to be told if they're going to wear a mask because they're otherwise just going to ignore it. And uh, other people say, well, even a mandate is likely to just be ignored because people are sick of this and, and it's a personal choice and all the rhetoric that you've been hearing over the past few clips. So the, it's a very active debate. And I thought it would be a good chance to, for us to dive in and, and, and explore some of the factors that are at play as governments decide what route to go on this one, because no one has really fully committed either way, except for Alberta. Yeah, absolutely. And as uh, you mentioned with the clips, it's Right now, we, we have uh, Dr. Kieran Moore saying, no, masks should be uh, it, it's strongly recommended. That's his medical opinion. But then you have the policy side and saying, well, we're, it, it's a personal choice. It, it's this tug of war right now. Juwita, I'm, I'm curious. I want to, uh, to find out from you, how do you feel if there would be a, a return to a mask mandate here in Ontario? Honestly, I'd actually welcome it. I think I would even go so far as to say that I am quite relieved uh, if they were to bring back a mask mandate. I'm not sure how successful they'll be in um, in enforcing that and how much compliance there'll be. But speaking for myself, I would certainly welcome it. I think... Um, over the course of the pandemic, we've had many uh, people be critical of reopening schools uh, when they have and talking about poor ventilation in classrooms. I would be concerned about kids in school um, dealing with this triple whammy, you know, the RSV, the flu and COVID. Uh, but we also need to remember that for the populations that have always been vulnerable. They're still at risk, whether it's the elderly or chronically disabled people or chronically ill people. They've never really 
been able to put the pandemic aside. And I feel like there is something to be said for recognizing that maybe things improved over the course of the summer. But certainly as we get into the winter, things are likely to get more difficult. And I'd be quite comfortable if they were to bring back a mask mandate as to whether governments will actually commit to doing that. And let's assume hypothetically that governments, in fact, do mandate masks again. I really do have doubts about how effectively they'll be able to enforce that at this stage in the game. Yeah, and and um, Michelle, as as you kind of mentioned, it's like, well, so whether or not they they do bring one back, are people actually going to follow them? You know, we we saw, especially during the towards the end of the the masking mandates, that it, it even though they were still in place, people were far more relaxed about it. I I know even just based on my experience when I was traveling for postcards during this past year, uh, there would be times where during the summer it's like. Oh, there's still a mask mandate here at this airport, and there was a couple that I went to. But you looked around, and there was very few people in certain areas wearing masks. And and I found it very um, fascinating. And I ended up asking uh, someone at the Charlottetown uh, uh, airport that, you know, why why is no one wearing a mask? It's like, oh, well, uh, in this section, it's actually regulated by the province. And the province is, uh, like they said, it's now a choice. But you go through security here, then that's the federal side, and then you have to wear a mask. Well, you, I guess uh, you guys can probably guess what happened. You go through security, and the same people who weren't wearing a mask before are still not wearing a mask then. But, uh, Michelle, I, I, I want to uh, find out from you, how would you feel about a return to mask mandates? And do you think any province is actually going to do it? I, I'm kind of with Joita. I It's something that I would personally uh, not have any problem with. In fact, I'd probably welcome it in light of the pressure on the pediatric healthcare system in particular, but I'm sure that's going to spill over elsewhere and, and already has in, in some cases. Um, I personally am acting like there's a mandate in place already in terms of my own masking use, uh, but in terms of what's going to happen it makes me nostalgic in a way for the early days of the pandemic when everyone's de facto position was listen to science we're not going to argue with it there wasn't it wasn't the, the political hot potato that it has since become for that reason the fact that this issue has become so deeply politicized uh, I need only refer back to the convoy protests to see exactly how hot button and charged this issue can be I think it's going to be a bit remarkable if many or even any governments decide to fully go back that route. I think there's going to be some provinces where the resistance might be a little bit fiercer than than elsewhere. Um, but I think in a province like Ontario will be a very interesting proving ground for this issue. This is a province whose uh, governing party is definitely a little bit more aligned with the Daniel Smiths of the world than, than not. And yet during the first several waves of COVID, Ontario did not hesitate to impose mask mandates, to impose some lockdowns, things that really did anger the base. So I'm going to be very interested to see where this goes, but it definitely seems like there's a, a more resistance to the idea of a mandate than we saw before. And it wouldn't at all surprise me if that led to a number of continued sort of communicative half measures like what we've been seeing. That's my other reason for thinking that there might be merit to a mandate is because of the mixed messaging and the confusing sort of vague messaging that's been going out around COVID. I think that's got a lot of people fed up and confused. And I think some clarity would be welcomed by a certain faction of the population. Absolutely. And and one part, as uh, I mentioned, as we started uh, set up the story is the fact that 
it's not just COVID that we're dealing with now. We, we have RSV, which is uh, impacting the, the children who at, at a certain age can't get vaccinated or, or uh, the parents haven't uh, vaccinated the children yet. And then you also have your, your seasonal flus, which is, always has a, a, a wide impact. We didn't see it early on in the pandemic because everyone stayed home, mm-hmm. everyone kept their distance, and everyone washed their hands like there was no tomorrow. But now these things are returning. And so it's like we were always very concerned about the hospitalization rates, the, the access to our emergency rooms, uh, how many beds were available. That's kind of that conversation has gone away, but the issue hasn't gone away. Uh, the the uh, supports and services that we rely on if you get sick, if you need to go to the hospital is still very much there. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Juita, I want to go to you on this one. Do you think that science has kind of been pushed aside and, and politics now is kind of reigning supreme over over science? We saw early on that Science was really in the forefront. I mean, mm-hmm. Teresa Tam was giving uh, 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 just press uh, conferences every day by herself as as the the voice of our national uh, um, science. But it seems things have changed a lot over the past two years, and now more specifically, policy is, seems to be driving what we're doing. Yeah, no, it, it's a good observation, and I suppose if you'll excuse the cynicism, an inevitable one. Uh, I think it is to be commended that in the early days of the pandemic, the health and medical establishment worked in lockstep with the political establishment. But really, I didn't actually think that that unanimity would last very long. Um, I think the convoy protest and the anti-vax protest that we've seen is a is a really good example of the adage where the greasy wheel, uh, where the squeaky wheel gets the grease, because although it is a minority of people who were at the convoy protest and a minority of people objecting to vaccines and a minority of people objecting to masks, they were a loud minority. And I think they've really managed to polarize the conversation. And beyond all of that, COVID fatigue is real. Um, and I think people want to return to quote-unquote normal, and politicians know this. They may not disagree with the science. They may even understand that the issues, as you pointed out, around hospitalization and the availability of emergency beds and ICU beds and uh, needing to cancel surgeries if the hospital system gets overwhelmed, all of those issues might still be at play, and politicians will not disagree with the need to bring back a mask mandate. But at this stage, they're likely not going to do that because that's not a hill that they want to die on politically. It's inevitable. Nothing in the world is apolitical. Um, I, I, I'm not at all surprised that it's come to this. Uh, it is an unfortunate turn of events because as I alluded to earlier in our conversation, I think it is germane to our discussion here. Um, there are many people with chronic health illnesses for whom the pandemic has never receded into the background. And they have uh, really struggled with optional mask mandates and uh, things like that. And, you know, and with reduced um, closures and, and uh, things going back to the way that they were because the the COVID-19 has not disappeared. And now we have RSV and flu to add to the mix as well. So from a disability advocacy standpoint, um, it's a disappointing turn of events but not one that is altogether surprising to me, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, yeah, and, and Michelle, I'm, I'm curious for uh, from your perspective, do you think that 
I, I know we, we're all kind of saying, yeah, we don't see a, a full-blown mass mandate coming in, into play, but maybe one that's a bit more targeted. We did see, you know, in hospitals, long-term, uh, long-term care homes, it was a lot more, um, it, it was it was around a lot longer. The, uh, some have mm-hmm. returned in certain situations. Do you foresee that being more of a, a model going forward that it's going to be very targeted? It's not going to be very uh, broad that all uh, public uh, uh, places need to have one. I yes, I I do think the as I kind of alluded to before, I think I think governments would, would try basically any alternative to imposing a full fledged mass mandate, and the only way that were to happen, in my estimation, is if the pressure on the health system just got to be unsustainable. Uh, define unsustainable as you will, though, because there are people right now who argue that the status quo is unsustainable and, and has been for quite a long time. So I don't know wh- where those thresholds would lie. But yes, I could absolutely see governments playing with basically any and every alternative to a widespread mm. full-on mask mandate. And a targeted model would make a certain amount of sense. Where I think that could be interesting is what targets they choose. I think LTC homes are going to be a relatively low-hanging fruit that people won't necessarily argue with too much. Uh, but if you start getting into that, into, say, like places of worship or schools, uh, places that really touch people's everyday lives, uh, sporting events, for instance, would be another one that I think would draw a lot of public ire. Uh, but that might well be something that that might be more of an acceptable risk for mm. certain governments i would think well and, and the thing is too one that was uh, in place for a long time was on airlines on on planes and uh, things like that whereas mm. you know the the argument was it was more really a a perception because uh, planes had some of the best filtration systems for for air and it was a bit of a, a lower a risk uh, environment compared to some other ones that may seem safer but actually had poor ventilation and and could lead to more more infections but uh, we'll we'll leave the conversation there for now so uh coming up next we contemplate whether there should be more vetting and safeguard for government officials and politicians on social media this is now news panel on AMI TV Welcome back. This is the Now News Panel on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe filling in for Dave Brown, and I'm joined by Juita Gupta and Michelle McQuig. We've got one more topic to discuss, and this one was my selection for the week. So we all know there is a lot of misinformation online, especially when it comes to social media. This week, a post went viral about 15,000 protesters in Iran being sentenced to death. It even got Prime Minister Justin Trudeau tweeting it, but then deleting it in response to the fact that it was deemed to be false information. Uh, So, Michelle, I want to start with you. When social media does a great job, it it connects people, it it allows us to get that immediate response, but it can also complicate things when it serves as an outlet for official government messaging and policy. So when it comes to government officials and heads of state, should there be more vetting and safeguards to avoid this type of situation in the future? In the climate we're in, I think you can never have too much vetting or too many safeguards in a case like this. Where I hesitate to weigh in, though, and criticize the existing practices is that we simply don't really know what they are. Uh, We're into 
in inside baseball a little bit where I don't know what the practices are, who is in charge, uh, what the vetting process actually looks like. I will say that this particular claim that was erroneously retweeted had been circulating in some circles that I'm sure would have been deemed pretty credible by the average vetter. So I can see how this one came about, and I'm sort of reluctant to, to draw fire on, on <laughs> the existing practices without knowing more about what they are. But I definitely will say that the risks of navigating social media and not falling prey to disinformation seem to be escalating almost by the week, it seems. And Twitter and all the drama unfolding there since the Elon Musk takeover has really been a microcosm of the broader issues, I think, as, as people try to fight misinformation and, and disseminate accurate ones. Uh, we now have questions about which accounts are real or verified or not, which is for muddying, muddying the waters even further, especially for those of us in fields like ours. So it's it's quite the thicket to navigate at the best of times, even with vetting in place and, and with staff on hand to help with this kind of process, as I think this story illustrates. Absolutely. And as you, as you mentioned, like this, uh, this fact and this figure was actually uh, uh, circulated by some news sites as well. So it's not just that this was heads of states and celebrities. It was also news organizations saw this and they were they were publishing it as well. Yeah. So, so there is. This was not a stat pulled from a YouTube video. I- exactly. Like was, there was a bit more, seemingly a bit more credibility to this number. Uh, Joita, I, I want to um, uh, bring you in on this. Do you think there should be more vetting, more safeguards in place, especially when we're talking about politicians and heads of state? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is, of course, there should be more safeguards in place and more processes to vet information before it's retweeted. But I think Michelle makes a really good point where we don't really know what those processes are. I mean, I said to my husband in a very tongue-in-cheek sort of way, really, Justin Trudeau hangs around on Twitter and retweets. Surely he's got bigger fish to fry. He's the prime minister of the country. Um, I mean, I don't even know who it was that retweeted that tweet. Was it Justin Trudeau, or was it one of his staffers who had access to his accounts? We they, we really don't know about the process, so we don't really have um, too much information about what those uh, safeguards would look like or what the processes would be. But general, the general idea remains the same: fact check your information, uh, see if it's uh, if it comes from an, uh, a credible source, double check to see if it comes from multiple sources. And I think there's always a good case to be made for training politicians and their staff on the on the use of social media, not just you know the. Um, the 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 who what when where and how, but also just thinking through questions of credibility and making sure you're putting out factual information, which I think we've made the point adequately has become more and more of a problem with the spread of misinformation and disinformation. So yeah, I mean, there's certainly um, there's certainly a case to be made for greater social media literacy, for greater safeguards. But I will say, um, I don't feel like this issue is. Uh, surprising, obviously. But also, I feel like people retweeting false information used to be far more common than it is now. I do think over the years, there's been greater attention paid to um, to providing credible information. And I think many uh, heads of states or politicians or public figures have become more responsible about social media use. This is likely a mistake and some I'm sure some heads will roll but it's not it, it I, I would say in general if you look at the trend it's probably people are more responsible than they were maybe five six years ago uh, yeah Can uh, I just go ahead go ahead add to that. It, 
what I found interesting on this issue is, is similar to the, the Trump announcement, is more the response than the fact that this tweet was issued in the first place. Um, you know, misinformation happens, mistakes happen. This, this tweet stayed up for about 12 hours before being taken down without explanation. Uh, a statement was issued to the media that kind of spun things a little bit and, and didn't come right out and say, you know what, we felt, we felt prey to some misinformation. Let this be a lesson to us all. There was none of that kind of tone. And I feel like that kind of thing might have gone a bit more of a way to putting this issue to bed faster than, yeah. it, than it did. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And it's, to me, it's one of those things that you look at. It's like, well, okay, he's our prime minister. He's going to have a, a media team. He has resources available that, you know, before you post something, you retweet something, you can just be like, hey, can you guys just make sure this is credible before I do it? And whether it's it's it was him who did it or or whether it was one of his staffers, it's just go through a bit more uh, of layers. Now, one I, I this kind of led to a broader question I was kind of having, and, and I'm kind of... I, I don't know about this, but uh, Michelle, we'll start with you. Do you think politicians and heads of state should be on social media at all? We we talked about Twitter and how unreliable and 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 how um, you know it, difficult it is to ensure what is truth, what is fact, what is fiction. Now, do you think there is a place still to have official uh, government uh, uh, members on social media platforms like this? I I I do, and I always have. I am. For the for the sake of expediency, let's pretend that the Twitter of today is the Twitter that we've always known, which it's not. Sure. <laughs> um, but in the early days, when politicians really started to adopt Twitter more widely, there was a lot of praise for what it could do for political engagement, for the, the kind of access it gave ordinary people to their civic leaders, the kind of dialogue it could foster. And some of those things really did come to pass. I don't necessarily think it was all sustained, but it did happen. Um, To say nothing of the fact that politicians are people too and and need sources of information like the rest of us. Um, Twitter has been a pretty valuable tool in facilitating communication with with politicians. It's been a very, very helpful tool for the media uh, and has been a great way of disseminating and and receiving information and tracking down sources. And on the political realm, it was an efficient way of communicating. So there was a lot of value in it, I think. Uh, so I, I wouldn't never be the one to say no. I think no politician has a place on Twitter. I think we would need to have conversations about ensuring the integrity of a certain platform, however, and I think that's a bit beyond our scope. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Joita, I want to uh, let you weigh in on this. You got about a minute to, uh, to respond. Well, to be honest with you, you're not going to be able to stuff this particular genie back in the lamb. I uh, I think it's pretty much a, a given that politicians have do and will continue to make use of social media as to whether or not they should be there. In all honesty, um, I feel like it's a question we should have asked ourselves 10 years ago. Um, Politicians have used this as a way to connect with their base uh, and to to an extent circumvent the traditional media rather than having a press conference where they might get asked tough questions. Now they're putting things out on social media. So it does give them this access to their base without having to necessarily be critiqued by the media in the same way. It doesn't take away from um, approaching social media with integrity. It doesn't take away from the arguments around, um, you know, preventing misinformation and disinformation. But I also caution against making this about the kerfuffle at Twitter at the moment. That is um, 
a whole other story in and of of itself. But if it wasn't Twitter, then it would be another a platform. Apparently, something called Mastodon is gaining ground on Twitter. So if people leave Twitter in droves, something else will take its place. Uh, a lot of the young people that I surround myself with are apparently on something called Discord, uh, mm-hmm. and that's yeah. where they get all yeah. of their info. So social media is here to stay. Politicians will be a part of that zeitgeist, and um, I think it's uh, inevitable again that you're going to have some information over social media and there will probably be some mistakes as well along the way absolutely well that's all the time we have it was a great conversation on three different topics so thank you michelle and thank you juita for chatting with me today thank you take care everybody so that michelle mcquig is the news editor at the canadian press and juita gupta is the host of the pulse on ami audio So uh, we want to hear from you guys at home. Uh, Make sure to connect with us on Twitter, even though we we just spent the last five minutes talking about Twitter and how unreliable it can be, at Accessible Media and on Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. You can also give us a call at 1-866-509-4545 or email us at feedback at ami.ca. So, and don't forget to give us permission to play comments on the air when, and We will be back in a minute. We got the sports news update with Brock Richardson. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Mike, filling in for Dave Brown. It's Friday, November 18th, 2022. Coming up on the second hour of our show, Karen McKay from the Center for Equitable Library Access tells you about this year's winner of the Governor General's Literary Awards. And Michael McNeely shares a sp- shines a spotlight on actor Toby Jones in his upcoming film, Empire of Light. But first, we'll bring in Mike Ross, who has your regional news update. In in British Columbia, where B.C.'s new premier is set to be sworn in today on the traditional territory of the Musqueam First Nations in Vancouver. The swearing-in ceremony for David Eby will be conducted by Lieutenant Governor Janet Austin at the Musqueam Community Centre instead of the typical location at a government house in Victoria. The 46-year-old father of two will be taking the reins from Premier John Horgan after tackling some top issues like money laundering involving casinos, restructuring of the ICBC, and housing policy reforms. EB says one of his top priorities will be transforming Vancouver's downtown east side from a neighborhood of desperation to one that is healthy and safe. The Lights of Wonder holiday display is returning to Victoria for the first time since its launch in 2019. The event is Greater Victoria's largest free light display and is set to transform Centennial Square into a winter wonderland from December 15th to the 31st. The Downtown Victoria Business Association says an ugly sweater contest, Chinese lion dancing and an early and late countdown on New Year's Eve will be part of the festivities. A silent disco and a booth that will accept donations for local charities will also be features of the free event. To the prairies, Manitoba still among the highest COVID-19 risks in Canada. The province is at a severe COVID-19 threat level for the third consecutive week, according to combined hospitalization and wastewater estimates. Tara Moriarty, co-founder of the COVID-19 Resources Canada Research Group, says... 
Recent spikes in transmission of the virus in Manitoba follow surges in Ontario and Quebec. The Manitoba government says it will issue a combined COVID-19 and respiratory virus report later today. For the second time in a decade, the Alberta government has fired the governing board of its health service and replaced it with an administrator. Premier Danielle Smith says Dr. John Cowell will take over the duties of the Alberta Health Services Board, effective immediately. Smith says he will begin to fix pressing concerns in the system, including a lack of doctors, long surgical wait times, ambulance bottlenecks, and overcrowded emergency wards. Opposition leader Rachel Notley says the decision will add more confusion to the system at the expense of dealing with emerging problems, particularly overcrowding in children's hospitals due to a surge in viral respiratory illnesses. In Ontario, parents are preparing for a weekend of uncertainty as another possible strike by education workers looms. The Canadian Union of Public Employees has said 55,000 of its workers will walk off en masse on Monday if a deal isn't reached by by 5 p.m. on Sunday, a deadline the government has agreed to. Several school boards have said learning will move online next week in the event of a walkout by the union, which filed strike notice earlier this week after talks with the province broke down. It would be the second time the workers, which include educational assistants, early childhood educators and custodians, have gone on strike this month. To Quebec, two Quebec men will appear in a Gatineau, Quebec courtroom today after they were charged for allegedly breaking into a safari animal park and killing three wild boars and one elk. Provincial police say Matthew Goddard, 47, and Jeremiah Matthias Polson, 21, were arrested November 10th outside or inside Omega Animal Park, about 130 kilometers northwest of Montreal, and allegedly caught with four animal carcasses in their vehicle. The two have been charged with willfully killing animals, kept for a lawful purpose, breaking and entering, illegally transporting firearms, and unlawfully firing a firearm during a break and enter. And in the Atlantic region, the police force in New Brunswick's capital is hoping to arm all of its officers with body cameras by next year. Frederick police, Fredericton rather, police chief Martin Godet has asked the city to earmark $60,000 in next year's capital budget for the purchase of 48 additional body cameras to bring the total, total in use to 60. University of Toronto criminology professor Julius Hagg says police services across the country have turned to body cameras as a way to respond to criticisms of excess use uh, of force being used against black and indigenous people. He says it's not clear yet if body cameras have changed police behavior, noting that adopting new technology doesn't require forces to make systemic changes. And those are your top regional headlines going coast to coast across the country. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, We'll check in with you in a little bit to get an update on the weather. But first, it's time for Sport Chat with Brock Richardson. Good morning, Brock. How's it going? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, my first day in the hosting chair. I'm, I'm enjoying it so far, and I'm ready to talk some sports with you. So our first story, you wanted to talk about Aaron Judge's baseball. What do you want to talk about with this one? Yes, so this is uh, an interesting story. So if you recall, Aaron Judge um, is now the American League leader in home runs in uh, overall time. And so the gentleman who caught the ball 
was offered $3 million, but subsequently turned it down uh, and is going to make it go to auction. And now, Alex, I suspect that this will at least go for double this ball because of the historic nature involved in it. But I would have some trouble with the idea of turning down $3 million, even though I suspect that it'll go for at least double that $3 million. I would have trouble rolling the dice and saying, eh, let's see. Uh, what happens here? Well, absolutely. The thing is, $3 million guaranteed in in hand, in pocket. I mean, you're setting yourself up for life guaranteed. An auction, you never know what you're going to get. And I, I know you're saying, well, it probably would potentially go for, for double that at, at auction. But I think I, w- I was looking up uh, what were the most expensive baseball uh, items ever ever auction i think uh it was babe ruth's jersey i believe that went for 4.4 million once upon a time but uh when it comes to baseballs i i think it was um the the most expensive baseball was three million dollars so if someone's offering you three million dollars for aaron judge uh his ball and the most uh, a baseball has ever gone for is three million dollars i mean Hey, I I would take that. I mean, that's guaranteed to be uh, tied with the most expensive baseball ever, right, Rock? Like you would take it, right? I would. There would I would even though it's easy to look and say, well, you know, we could roll the dice. 3 million dollars is a lot of money. And as you point out, and rightfully so, it would guarantee you uh, you know, a good life and it's guaranteed money. I'm not so sure I would roll the dice and say, let's take a chance, but uh to each his own, you know. Well, and, and to me, too, like, I always love when you, you see at the games, like, we, we saw it um, when uh, that that home run was made and the fan caught the ball. And the same thing when, when Tom Brady uh, threw the um, the touchdown pass and Mike Evans threw the ball into the stands. It's like, you see the fans, like, they know the value of this ball and they start trying to negotiate. I don't think I would have the willpower and, and the, the confidence to leave the stadium with with that ball in my possession, I would a I would be afraid that I wouldn't be able to make it home with that ball, or b it's like maybe like there's some good deals that they offer up uh, when you're in the seat with the ball in your hand that they wanna they wanna get it off you. So it's it's one of those things like I probably would have sold it for far less than uh, than what it's being offered uh, right now. But I mean, kudos for him. He 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 held on to it. He's got an offer for $3 million and going to see if he can make it even more. So uh, why don't we shift gears a little bit. And uh, Thursday Night Football uh, wrapped up last night. It was the Green Bay Packers and the Tennessee Titans. Give us your breakdown on that game. Uh, Look, I think Tennessee played really, really well. They uh, took it to Green Bay both in the air and on the the ground. I think, um, you know, Tennessee is... A very strong team in general. I think we're seeing kind of the end of Green Bay this season, particularly. I really don't see them sliding into a wildcard position. It's going to be very tough, but it's tough when you see somebody like Aaron Rodgers kind of go down slower and slower as he's someone that I grew up with watching football. And it's kind of tough to watch him sometimes when you think, man, he used to make those passes all the time. Uh, as a Chicago Bears fan, I have no problem seeing Aaron Rodgers suffer uh, after he's made my team suffer for many, many years. And then before that, Brett Favre made my team suffer for many, many years before that. I, I think you're you're right, Brock. I, I think it's one of those things that this is definitely the twilight of his career. Unfortunately, 
you have a Hall of Fame caliber quarterback. You never really surrounded him with talent consistently, at least on the offensive side. Now, that said, Christian Watson, he looks like the real deal. He looks like a stud at receiver. But when he's your only guy and he's the re- he's a rookie, you, you can't just rely on a rookie, especially when you're going to the school of Aaron Rodgers where he's going to break you down as a receiver. He's going to tell you what he wants and what he expects, and it takes some time to get that – that confidence, that that bond between receiver and Aaron Rodgers. So I, I think it's a bit too little, too late. But saying that, the Tennessee Titans are 7-3. and three. How did that happen? They're not, in my mind this year, they're not that great of a team, but they just kind of snuck through. Like, I, I think this was their, their highest offensive output with 27 points in a game, which it was it was great to see. You know, you Derrick Henry was was running mad. Uh, uh, Ryan Tannehill was was throwing the ball well. But I, I was shocked when I looked at the record. And it's like, wait, I thought, I thought Tennessee wasn't that good. And you know what? There's a whole bunch of teams now within that 7-3 and three record in the AFC specifically. And you're right. When you look at Tennessee, you kind of think to yourself, really? Are they a 7-win team? And I think there's going to be a few more wins uh, before all said and done. So, you know, I, they're kind of that team that sneaks up on you. And I am always one for a team that's an underdog. I kind of like the underdog. You know, it's it's nice to see another team get in there and get get beyond where people think they are. And this is, could be the Tennessee Titans for sure. Absolutely. One well, And a few years ago, they, they were one of the favorites coming out of the AFC. They, they were a strong team, well-coached. I mean, anytime uh, the team has Derrick Henry, it they're almost unstoppable. And Ryan Tannehill just wouldn't really turn the ball over. Now he did have an interception, but it, it's it's a consistent style of play, and it's a smart style of play. They they weren't always flashy, but they were consistent. Now they had a few down years. They they lost AJ Brown uh, via trade, but you know you, you look around and it's like, hey, if, if you're seven and three this late in the season, there's something worth. Uh, worth going for with with this team, and they're worth a watch, I think, going forward. But uh, now let's let's take a look ahead at a, a bit of a, a weekend primer, pre- weekend look ahead. You wanted to uh, profile the the Raptors game. Yes, yeah, so the Raptors are taking on the Atlanta Hawks in Atlanta tonight. Look for the Raptors to uh, continue on the role that they are. OG Ananobi has been absolutely unbelievable uh, in the absence of Siakam uh, for the last little while. This team has kind of gelled in their own way uh, with the absence, which is exactly what you need. You need depth, and you need not to rely on uh, Fred Van Vliet. So you need those extra players to to fill the shoes a little bit and uh, get some points. And so I expect OG to continue to do this against Atlanta. In hockey this weekend, uh, one of the matchups that I'm looking forward to is Vegas Golden Knights and the Edmonton Oilers. I think that's going to be... a Fascinating way to end uh, Hockey Night in Canada on Saturday. And, of course, we're talking about the Grey Cup uh, this weekend between the Winnipeg Blue Bombers versus the Toronto Argonauts. And the big question is, what does Zach Kalaros look like with his ankle issue? Does he play? All things are pointing to yes, but how does he look will be the main question on the first drive when Winnipeg has the football. Yeah, absolutely. So going going through the list first, we'll we'll talk Raptors. I I think it's going to be an intriguing matchup. I both teams are are playing well. I think they're both nine win teams at this uh, this stage in the season. So it's going to be a tough matchup. But I I I like the Raptors, and and I think it's going to be back and forth, and it's going to be uh, tough no matter what. 
Uh, going to, to Edmonton, oh, sweet, sweet Edmonton. You know, you, you, you get your heart set and you just kind of want them to, you, you want them to win every game and you just feel for a guy like Connor McDavid. It's like, come on, get the, get the puck going, get some support. You know, he, he tries to do it all. And, and having lived out in Edmonton for a few years, unfortunately, I literally moved out, uh, the day that they lost in that heartbreak, uh, uh, playoff game against Anaheim a few years ago. And then, uh, right after I left, then they made it to the playoffs. So I was a bit of a, a, a curse out in Edmonton, but the Vegas Golden Knights—they're—they're they're a strong team. They're—they're they're a, a quiet, sneaky team that's—that's that's playing well. They got a lot of star power on that team, so I think they're going to do quite well. Another hockey one I'm—I'm I'm almost kind of shy to profile is uh, my sons are going to be playing the uh, New Jersey Devils. I think they're going to get smucked. The Devils are uh, uh, one of the the best teams in the league right now, so. Hopefully, you know the Sens can turn it around uh, some point soon and gets that their their young talent going. But yeah, the the Grey Cup, I, I think that's going to be so interesting because, as you mentioned, Zach Kalaros, he's dealing dealing with an injury. All, if, if you compare these two teams healthy, I mean, I don't think it's really much contest. Uh, Winnipeg would dominate, and especially too, you look at the 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 awards. Uh, Winnipeg was well represented with. The coaching with uh, Zach Claros and uh, uh, defensive uh, awards as well, but you never know with with the if if Claros can't go or maybe he's very limited because of the injury. Maybe does Toronto sneak one out? I I don't know. But uh, and and finally the other uh, um, uh, sports news as as we mentioned as part of our our uh, daily poll at AMI uh, at Accessible Media and at Accessible Media Inc on Facebook and uh, Twitter is the World Cup is starting this weekend. Are you are you excited, uh, Brock? Are you going to be watching all the games? Yes, I will be watching as many as I can. Um, my focus will be when Canada gets going on Wednesday, which you and I'll preview. Uh, Probably Wednesday morning, we'll mm-hmm. chat a little bit about that. But yes, it'll be very fascinating. And soccer isn't one of my favorite sports for the Premier Leagues and MLS Cup. But when the World Cup comes around, yeah, I, I can get on board. So I'm looking forward to it for sure. Yeah, that's the one thing I love about the World Cup. It's unlike any other co- sport competition in my mind where it's like you have so many nations that can compete, that can be competitive. And it's not just geographically linked like it is for for hockey or or baseball or some of these other international competitions when we see it at the Olympics. There's representation and strong teams across the globe. So that's going to be something really fun to to watch and, and check out. So Brock, thank you so much and have a great weekend. Yes, and we'll talk to you again on Tuesday. Sounds good. That was Brock Richardson, who is the host of the Neutral Zone. Now let's bring in Mike Ross, who has our weather update. Thanks, Alex. We are going to get you your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We'll begin in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, where there are flurries today with a risk of snow squalls. Expect about five centimeters in total. Your temperature will be steady near plus two. Charlottetown PEI has a mix of sun and cloud. The high is plus two. The wind chill, minus eight. St. John, New Brunswick will be mainly sunny today with a high of plus one and a wind chill this morning of minus 10. Quebec City, a mix of sun and cloud, a high of minus 3. The wind chill will be minus 15 this morning, rising to minus 9 this afternoon. Toronto has a mix of sun and cloud with a high of plus 1, and the wind chill is minus 7. To Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, a mix of sun and cloud with a high of minus 1. The wind chill, minus 11 this morning, minus 5 this afternoon. 
To Brandon, Manitoba next, mainly cloudy with some light snow, a high of minus 7. The wind chill this morning, minus 25, minus 17 this afternoon. Similar conditions in Regina today with a high of minus 7 and a wind chill of minus 25 this this morning, minus 17 this afternoon. Lethbridge, Alberta will be mainly sunny. The high is 0, the wind chill minus 18. Red Deer, Alberta, mainly sunny with a high of minus 4, a wind chill of minus 19 this morning, up to minus 8 this afternoon. To Whitehorse, mainly cloudy with a temperature steady near minus 13, and the wind chill minus 23. Kelowna has a mix of sun and cloud today, and a high of minus 1, your wind chill near minus 8. And Vancouver will be sunny today with a high of 11. And that is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Mike. We'll talk to you a bit later when we do the roundtable, but I do not miss those November days with minus 20 uh, windchill. Had a few of those in in Edmonton. I'm good now. I I had enough for my life. But uh, coming up after the break, Michael McNeely shares a spotlight on actor Toby Jones in his upcoming film, Empire Light. But first... Here is reporters Cherry Preston with Tech Trends. The FTC says American consumers have collectively lost $6 billion over the last four years to scammers who impersonate legitimate businesses and organizations online. Claire Rosenzweig is with the Better Business Bureau. Scammers are going to try to use your emotions against you so that you react and give them what they want, which is usually your money or your personal information. Amazon's Darmish Mehta says about half of the impersonations that his company sees have to do with fake order confirmations. Looking like you bought something online or in a store and pretend that you need to urgently contact customer service and they'll give you a link or a phone number to try and contact them. He says, be wary of numbers you don't recognize and when in doubt, just call customer service. You go to amazon.com or use the Amazon app. With Tech Trends, I'm Sherry Preston, ABC News. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown. I'm Alex Smythe, filling in for Dave Brown. It's Friday, so that means Michael McNeely joins us from Toronto to talk movies. This time around, he's going to put a spotlight on an actor, Toby Jones, who is set to appear in the upcoming romance drama, Empire of Light. Hey, Michael, how's it going? How are you doing? It's nice to see you again. Well, Michael, I'm excited to be here. So you want to talk movies and you wanted to talk Toby Jones. So... People don't really know a lot about Toby Jones, but why did he stand out to you? I think he stands out to me partly because he's not well known in Canada and the United States, and I just wanted to do my due diligence and making sure that he's more well known, although he probably doesn't need the help. He has won a lot of awards, including just a distinction in acting excellence in Britain. He has been making movies or been in movies since the beginning of the 21st century. And so I think even if you don't know him, you've seen a movie with him in it. He's been in Captain America. He's been in The Painted Field. He's played Darby in the Harry Potter movies. 
so you definitely have heard him or seen him. If you are able to see him, you would recognize that he has a distinctive facial appearance. That means that he's not necessarily a conventional, attractive man, but I am sure he's still attractive in many ways. He just stands out based on his appearance being different than the norm. Uh, absolutely, and uh, you you list some of the movies that he is well known for. That when I looked up the the name, because obviously the name wasn't familiar, yeah, I, those were the ones that immediately jumped out in my mind. And he's been described as a bit of a a character actor. Can you tell me first off, what do you think that definition means, and why does it fit so perfectly for him? So I think a character actor can be defined as an actor that plays a character that is distinctive, but is not the main character of a movie. So I was talking to Andrea about this yesterday, and I was saying that, you know, Tom Cruise is not a character actor. Tom Cruise exudes main character energy. You're watching Mission, Mission Impossible for him. But the character actor in the Mission Impossible movies may be Simon Pegg, who stands out because he's doing comic relief and he's doing the tax support. So, in the case of Toby Jones, um, he plays a lot of smaller characters and bigger blockbuster films, and they stand out because they actually took the time to give Toby Jones a character that he can play the hell out of. So it's not just a secondary character, it's not somebody behind the scenes, it's not an extra it's a character that has some impact onto the storyline, and it's somebody that you will remember. Absolutely. Now, Toby Jones has acted alongside more recognizable names like Daniel Craig, Olivia Coleman, and Colin Firth. Let's discuss some of the more notable roles starring the inf- uh, starting with Infamous, where he was playing uh, uh, Truman Capote. Can you tell me a bit more about that movie? Yes. So he played Truman Capote just after Philip Seymour Hoffman played Truman Capote, I believe. I believe um, Seymour Hoffman um, got some Oscar recognition. But, um, you know, it's the same that Toby Jones was late to the party. But I don't think that's the case. I think Truman Capote is somebody that we can still have a lot of actors play and convey in an interesting way. I will give you a piece of trivia. Toby Jones is probably the only actor that's kissed Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig is in that movie. And, in fact, is one of the killers from the, you know, the In Cold Blood, who was homosexual, and uh, Truman Capote was also homosexual as well. So they had a little kiss. I don't know if that's really the best depiction of homosexuality, but it is something. Well, you, you're always bringing the, the hidden facts there, Michael, so thank you. And let's uh, talk about some of the other roles that are worth highlighting from his career. Yes, and so we have um, Toby Jones playing Alfred Hitchcock. And this is also at the same time, or just shortly after, Anthony Hopkins played Hitchcock himself. So again, is Toby Jones late to the party? Yes and no. But um, Toby Jones does give Hitchcock a menace, an evil that is actually pretty, pretty uh, true to form and pretty true to life of Alfred Hitchcock. Maybe one day we'll do a segment on Alfred Hitchcock 
But let's say that he was not a very nice man. He um, he definitely objectified and sexualized his actors, his women actors, especially Tippi Hedwin, which is what this film is about. And uh, Tippi Hedwin would have a lot of baggage for the rest of her life because she was the target of Alfred Hitchcock's sexism. And you also wanted to talk, touch on the movie Uncle Va- uh, Vanya. Can you tell me a bit more about that one? Uncle Vanya was a, um, is a play by Chekhov. And basically, Toby Jones plays Uncle Vanya. And because it was a play, what we have is a filmed version of that play on, in London's West End during the COVID crisis. Because, you know, ultimately, everybody wanted to capture a recording of this play because nobody was able to go to the theater to see it. So we have Toby Jones playing a drunk, erratic man who is frustrated with the limitations that have been placed on him for taking care of a household, and he's taking his frustration out in other people, with other people. So I think that's just uh, an example to show how, how varied of a performer he is. And you also wanted to touch on The Detectorists. It's a comedy series about metal detectorists. Can you tell me a bit more about that one? Yes, I can. Have you ever have you ever looked for metal with a metal detector? I, I can't say I have. I, I've seen people on the beach do it. It's not something I've ever done. No, that's true. I have never done it either, but I feel like I could, I could strike it rich. Um, that's what Toby Jones does in this series with Mackenzie Quirk, who plays his best friend, and Mackenzie Quirk is from Game of Thrones. Um, and he also has a distinctive facial appearance as well. But ultimately, these two, these two guys are just, you know, they have dead-end jobs, and they just love metal detecting. And it's, it's, it's just one of those amazing series that takes something so small and puts a magnifying glass on it, and then it makes us realize, oh, my goodness, there's something, there's something that somebody can have a passion for. Now, finally, we want, you wanted to highlight the upcoming film Empire by Light, uh, which is coming from Empire of Light, sorry, from Sam Mendes. What can you tell me about that film? What can the folks at home expect? So that one is actually going to feature Olivia Coleman, who is another character actor slash main actor with lots of, um, lots of talent. And it's also going to have Michael, Michael Ward. Um, so essentially, these two actors are going to have a romance. It's going to be an October-May romance because Olivia Coleman is much older than Michael Ward. But Olivia Coleman plays a, um, the owner of a fallen down, or, you know, fallen down movie theater that has seen better days. And Michael Ward is the new employee who is of a different uh, different race than Olivia Coleman, and so they have to deal with racism in the 1980s. So what happens with Toby Jones, just like we've been talking about, he's not the main actor, he's sort of a background character actor, he's going to be playing the projectionist in that theater. And so other than having you play the projectionist, Alice, I think Toby Jones will do a good job. Yeah, I think so, too. Now, he is campaigning for the Best Supporting Actor nomination for at the Oscars for this role. Do you think he has a shot? 
I don't think it's this film that's going to give him that shot. I I don't really see anything special about this performance. I mean, it's a Toby Jones performance that's going to do a good job, but I mean, it's not it's not something that is immediately giving a Oscar vibe to. It's not a Hawaii war. It's not something that changes the you know the history of the day. So I'm thinking, you know, if Toby Jones gets something, it will be in recognition for his life, for his lifelong work, and hopefully he'll have a more juicy rule, like Alfred Hitchcock or Truman Capote to sink his teeth in very soon. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on and chatting Toby Jones with me. It's a lot of fun. It's always great talking with you. Thank you very much, and by all means... Please share your, your favorite actors and characters with AMI, and we're always happy to look at them sometime. Absolutely. Uh, that was Michael McNeely chatting about the actor Toby Jones, and you can catch him in the upcoming romance drama Empire of Light. The film is set to release on December 9th, and it is rated R, and you can follow Michael on Twitter at, at Michael D. McNeely, and McNeely is spelled M-C-E-E-L-Y. When we return, we check in with Sila to find out what's happening with them. This is Now with Dave Brown. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown. As you may notice, I am not, in fact, Dave Brown and Alex Smythe filling in for Dave as he takes a nicely deserved vacation. So it's at this time in the show, we like to do our roundtable. So I want to bring in Mike Ross, who is actually going to be leading this roundtable. Mike, how's it going? I'm great. Thanks, Alex. And uh, today it's an interesting conversation that I'm really anxious to get your perspective on and Nisreen Abdel-Majid's perspective on. A Valuable 500, it's a global business collective of 500 CEOs and their companies. And they recently listed the 10 most accessible state, uh, cities in the world based on a survey of 3,500 tourists with disabilities across five territories. And those territories were the UK, Japan, China, the US, and Australia. And they looked at criteria like transportation. They looked at the proximity of accommodations to cultural attractions, shops, and restaurants. And they talked uh, and they looked at the availability of information about accessibility. So uh, I want to bring in Nisreen as well to join the conversation. Hi, Nisreen. Hi there. So I want to ask both of you, first and foremost, um, what is the most accessible place you've ever visited anywhere in the world? Alex, I'll start with you. Yeah, this is a tough one because I, when I was looking at this article, A, I, I found it fascinating because I'm, I'm a big fan of accessible travel and, and really exploring all this. But I, I was starting to look back and, and try to remember like what my travel experiences were like and what was accessible because I've actually been to a couple of the places on this list. Like I've been to Shanghai and I remember Shanghai just being absolutely phenomenal just in every single like way and scope that uh, I can think of. But while there were some great things and uh, great accessibility features of, of Shanghai, there was also uh, a lot of areas where I remember it falling short, like especially when it came to things like washrooms like there there weren't 
really any accessible washrooms, let alone even Western-style washrooms uh, when I was in Shanghai outside of, of the uh, the hotels that I stayed at. So I think for me, it, it would have to be somewhere kind of like, you know, Paris, uh, uh, which is also on the list. I, I remember there were so many just like hidden accessibility features, a lot of just smoothed out curbways, uh, uh, like smooth walking past elevators when needed. The the transit system was really, really strong. All the uh, the exhibits and all the major attractions were had multiple levels of accessibility for different accessibility needs, including vision and hearing and mobility issues. So I, I think Paris is probably the top one for me. All right. So you mentioned Paris, you mentioned Singapore. I'll give you the other uh, results here from the survey. So uh, Singapore was tops uh, on the list. Las Vegas, Nevada was second. Amsterdam in the Netherlands was third, followed by New York City, Orlando, Paris, France, Shanghai, London, Sydney, Australia, and Tokyo, Japan. So that's the top 10 in this survey. Nisreen, what about you? What uh, what kind of uh, experiences have you had and, and what was the best in your mind? I'm so happy you brought up Orlando because I just remember years ago, I was using a wheelchair and I went to Orlando. We went to Disney World and it was very accessible, wheelchair accessible at least. Um, and even the washrooms, uh, you brought up the washrooms because a lot of the times they don't have accessible washrooms for wheelchair users. So even the sinks, accessible. Um, everything else, there was a lane for people who are uh, who use a wheelchair uh, for the attractions and things like that in Disney World. Um, another place that I thought of was London, UK, when we went. Transportation, I mean, there's a, uh, an underground for every location you can ever imagine they have so many lines it's insane and i absolutely love it i think back to uh, my favorite trip in my life was going to italy loved italy loved everything about it but i re- remember um from an accessibility standpoint things that, that sort of stood out um that just were not great was just because of the age of the cities and the country um, made it very difficult for them, or in some cases, they just did not uh, retrofit buildings. So accessibility inside buildings was a huge issue. I remember bathrooms being very small, uh, showers being very small. So if you were someone uh, who needed uh, to to have a sort of a roll in shower, for example, if you're in a, in a chair or you needed a bench in a shower that that just wasn't happening in most of the places that we visited. And I think it had a lot to do with just the age of the country, the age of the infrastructure and just either the inability or just refusal to uh, yeah. to to address that. And in some cases, you've got heritage concerns where people are saying, oh, we can't do that to heritage buildings. Yet you see the heritage buildings in many parts of uh, North America that are being retrofitted. So um, I, I I do remember thinking about how challenging it could be in some of these uh, places like Italy, like Spain. Uh, but I was happy to see that Paris uh, made the list here as far as uh, top ten uh, you know experiences for, for people. Alex, you've traveled a lot across Canada as well. Not a single Canadian city making this uh, survey because Canada was not part of 
this survey. So they, they didn't include Canada. They had the U.S. as far as North America goes. What have your experiences been right here at home? Well, this is the interesting thing because um, we've, we've had different um, accessible city awards uh, given out a, across the country, I think, through the Rick Hansen Foundation. And I remember when I was living in Edmonton, Edmonton was actually awarded um, for being an accessible city. And I was kind of like thinking to myself and kind of struggling with that a bit. It's like, okay, I get on on some regards, you know, Edmonton is a relatively flat city. There There aren't really too many... Um, major like ups and downs with the exception of of the riverbank that that runs through the city, but it's all the bridges and and most of the city is on flat land. But it, it, it may be pretty accessible during the summertime and all the buildings and everything and, and the walkways, but come winter, uh, it's a different story. And winters are long in, in Edmonton. I mean, I remember it would snow in June and snow in September. So you you got a couple of months where there's a snow-free zone because once the snow and the ice and everything is takes hold of Edmonton, that accessibility really goes away, especially if you have mobility issues or if you, uh, if you have uh, vision loss and you're trying to navigate a snow-covered or ice-covered sidewalk or, or, or bank or trying to get onto the public transit. So there, there, there's a lot of pros with some of the places uh, we have in around uh, Canada. Even even here in Toronto, there's, there's a lot of positives. But there's also those little issues like uh, with whether it here in, in, in Toronto with the TTC and the, uh, and the, uh, the subways. Like, yeah, it's great. You know, the subway cars themselves are accessible. But a lot of the stations, there's no elevator. So if you have if you use a wheelchair or if you have mobility issues, you can't physically get down into those subway stations. So it's it's these little half measures I find that that are are the problem, especially here in Canada. And certainly traveling to more remote areas in this country and going up uh, to to the northern part of the country. I mean, you're running into places that in in some instances don't even have sidewalks, right? Never mind that a sidewalk might be blocked. There is no sidewalk, which makes uh, getting around, uh, you know, that much more challenging. Absolutely. And it's it's unfortunate. I, I like to see and hope that it, it continues to move forward, but uh, and, and improve as as we carry on. But uh, we'll just have to wait and see. But uh, that, that's all the time we have on on the roundtable. Mike, thank you so much for uh, for pulling this one out and leading this discussion. And Nisreen, thank you so much for chiming in. Thank you. That was Nisreen Abdel-Majid and Mike Ross joining us for the now uh, roundtable. And since there is no Ramya today, I will be doing. The, uh, the look ahead of what's coming up on Kelly and Company. So today, they have John Beeler telling you about Notion, a service that uses AI to write your blog posts, job descriptions, and poetry. Karen McGee shares her impressions after attending the, the Paratuff competition in Montreal earlier this month. Plus, in starting in 2023, Amazon will start showing Goodreads reviews and ratings in their apps when searching for ebooks and audiobooks. Ryan Huey has the scoop on that. And all that and more is happening on Kelly and Company today at 2 p.m. Eastern on AMI-audio. And coming up next, Karen uh, Karen McKay from the Center of Equitable Library Access tells you about this year's winners of the Governor General Literary Awards. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv.
Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe. It's Fridays, and every other week, we check in with representatives from the Center of Equitary... Excuse me. Let's try that one again. The Center for Equitable Library Access will let us know about the latest available accessible reading material. Today, we're speaking with CELA Communications Manager, Karen McKay. Hi, Karen. How's it going? I'm great today. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. So, uh, the first topic you wanted to touch on was the Governor General's Literary Award, uh, Awards. The winners were announced earlier this week. So, let's go through the uh, the three main categories. So, who won for fiction? So, fiction was won by uh, Sheila Haiti for her book called Pure Color, which is based on this idea that we are all here just sort of living the first draft of a, an artist's creation, and that artist is about to tear that creation apart. So it's a very interesting premise for a book, um, and I'm not surprised it won. It's a, it's a beautiful, lyrical, poet, poetical kind of book. And, and um, if you love that kind of story, I think folks will really love it. Yeah, just based on that brief description, I'm, I'm already mentally adding it to my, my reading <laughs> list. So uh, what about the nonfiction category? So the nonfiction was won by um, uh, Eli Baxter for his memoir called Aki Wayne Z, which explores the science and the history and the math, uh, the philosophy, education law. It's a wide-ranging exploration of the uh, Anishinaabe identity. And so, again, not surprised that this one won. Uh, It's, it's again, a beautiful book, and it contains some really important wisdom, I think. So if folks are interested in learning more about this particular topic, I highly recommend picking this one up. Absolutely. And the third category is for young adult literature? Yeah. So Jen Ferguson won this one for her uh, young adult book called The Summer of Bitter and Sweet, which is about a young Métis girl living on the Canadian prairies and what happens when she gets a letter from her biological father, who she never really wanted to meet. She hoped that he would stay behind bars for the rest of his life, but she can't. Uh, she can't ignore him. So the story follows that, uh, that journey for that young person. Excellent book. And now we're we're going to stick with literary awards because another one you had been talking about in uh, previous appearances is the Scotiabank Giller Prize, and the winner was announced earlier this month. So who won the award? Suzette Marr won for her book called The Sleeping Car Porter, which is about a, a train car porter named Baxter who's a queer black man, and he has to serve these white passengers when things go awry on one of their one of their trips. And so I, I really love this book because it I think it brings an important perspective from a culture that has rendered this person invisible in two ways. He's gay and he's black. Uh, excellent, excellent book. And so people at home who are wondering, like these awards, they also come with cash prizes as well. So how much does the winner get? So for the Scotiabank Giller Prize, that's the biggest one. That's a $100,000 prize. So you know, that's enough to spend a, a year or two writing another another novel. It's uh, it's great that Canadian Literary Awards are really supporting authors this way. And the nominees also get um, an amount. It depends on the awards. But, you know, some of those are five, ten. $15,000. So really lovely to see this kind of support for our for our, liter- our literary giant. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, you know, it, it's not only important to celebrate, but also support them financially. And this award goes a long way for doing that then. It does. It does. Yes. Now, yeah. And now uh, we move on. You always like to bring some featured titles of the week. This week, your selections honor something that's really near and dear to my heart. And we're talking bread, specifically to to honor Homemade Bread Day, which is on November 17th. So can you tell me a bit more about the selections? 
Yeah, so I was a little hungry when I went looking for a theme for this week, and I stumbled across this, um, and I'm a bread baker, so I loved it, and I love finding interesting books in our collection just by putting in a, you know, a random topic like bread and seeing what comes up. So these books are all new to the collection. The first one I wanted to bring to you is called Death Gone Awry, and it's spelled A-R-Y-E. It's a bit of a pun, and it's part of a uh, series called The Bread Shop Mysteries by Winnie Archer. So this is a cozy mystery. It's full of fun and puns, as you can tell from the title. This one's the number six in the series, and it features two main characters, Ivy Culpepper, who is a budding photographer, and she works in a bake shop owned by um, Olea, and it's a the bake shop is called Yeast of Eden, of course, puns, right? So this, yeah. so this book uh, starts with um, uh, a wedding. The sheriff of the town goes off on his honeymoon. Um, the bakers are working on a, a spring fling project for a school project. And unfortunately, there's a murder. The ambitious school board president, Nessa Rennick, has been murdered. And like the rest of the close-knit community, Ivy is shocked. She's um, also surprised to find out that her boy friend Miguel Baptista has had a fling with Nessa back in the day and now the police have this idea that her boyfriend might have killed Nessa. So because the sheriff's out of town, it's up to Ivy and her boss, whose name's Olea, and um, a sidekick of theirs who's 86 years old, her name's Penelope Bradford, and they need to get to the bottom of this situation. Cozy mysteries are beloved because they are character-driven. They're not dull gory. Um, there's something sort of that suggests that you should be reading these books while cuddled under a blanket with a cup of tea. It's just a lovely read. It's a great way to kind of relax, check out for a little bit. There's seven of these books in this series, and they have titles like Doe or Die and Flower in the Attic, and there's a, a Christmas-themed one, too. So lots of fun, great, light read. Yeah, and, and the puns are just baked right in there, aren't they? Oh, geez, that was bad. Yes, they are. <laughs> Perfect. Now, what can you tell me about baking bread? Or breaking bread, so sorry. Is, breaking bread. I, I, I got bacon on my mind. <laughs> so breaking bread, um, I really love this. It's a, it's a, an anthology of um, essays brought together by uh, an organization called Blue Angel, which is a nonprofit combating food insecurity by delivering healthy food to local farmers and those in need. And so there's more than 60 renowned New England food writers who have gathered around the collective table to talk about food and how it sustains us both, you know, mind and body and in our soul. It celebrates uh, local food, family and community. And I really love this because it's divided into sections, things like love and loss is one section and taste and distaste is another. But it, it hits a wide range of topics. There's everything from the pleasures of being a locavore to beloved uh, childhood food from Iran, the horror of starving in a prison camp, um, the idea of baking pot brownies for an ill friend, the pleasure of buying a, a chocolate egg for a, a child. And so if folks have been thinking about food, and I think a lot of us have with the skyrocketing price and all the news stories about the increasing demand at food banks, um, and you want to sort of understand our food ecosystem in North America, this is a really excellent collection of essays. It allows us to kind of delve into our consciousness around hunger, our food mentality, but also celebrate really great food. I love anthologies like this because you can kind of dip in and out, find um, uh, an article that speaks to you at the time and think about it. And I love that they're all on this theme and that it's a, it's a fundraiser for this organization that wants to make sure that folks have access to food. Absolutely. Now, you have a few other selections as well. Unfortunately, we are running out of time, Karen, but we will put them up on our blog. But can you give us the titles uh, quickly for folks at home so they can check them out? 
Sure. So one's called Cheese, Wine, and Bread, Discovering the Magic of Fermentation in England, Italy, and France. And it's sort of a travelogue memoir, and it delves into fermentation. Uh, the other one's called Bread Out of Stone, Recollections on Sex, Recognition, Race, Dreaming, and Politics by Dion Brand, who's a literary giant in Canada. Um, and the last one uh, is called Bread Therapy, The Mindful Art of Baking Bread, which teaches you how to bake bread, but also helps you uh, ground yourself in the process. Karen, thank you so much. I'm starving now. I'm, I'm probably going to go eat some bread and read one of these books. So thank you and have a great weekend. Thanks, you too. That was Karen McKay, who is the communications manager for the Center for Equitable Library Access. You can follow Sela on Twitter at Sela Library. Coming up on Monday on Now with Dave Brown, Marco Pascuas explores the accessibility pros and cons of blockchain technology and cryptocurrency. That's Now with Dave Brown on uh, on 9 a.m. Eastern on AMI-tv. And I want to thank our guests today, Joita Gupta, Michelle McQuig, Michael McNeely, and Karen McKay. And special thanks to Mike Ross for filling in today. And it is Friday, so we always like to give a thanks to the team. Obviously, we start with our host, Dave Brown, who is taking a well-deserved break. Uh, Brock Richardson, who always brings the great sports conversations. Andrika Delanerol, who is our senior show producer. Our TV technical producer, Bruce Buclarian. Our uh, producers, Paul Daniel and Marianne Dion-Jones. Our production team, Daniel Panamundo, Eliza Brocco, and Kingsley Juco. This is a, a, a labor of love. Everyone does a great job. So have a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Red Sale, inviting you to download the latest episode of My Life in Books, where internationally acclaimed authors discuss their lives, their work, and three books that have resonated with them. That's My Life in Books, available wherever you get your AMI podcasts.